I want to invite you to turn to your Bible to 1 John chapter 1. Last week, if you were with us, you recall that we did an overview of this letter that John wrote to the churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And uh, we, uh, it's, it's believed uh, by most scholars that this was actually John's last letter. You know, this is John the Sage. He's the last apostle. Every other apostle was martyred, but not John. He was exiled on the island of Patmos for some time. That's where he wrote the book of Revelation. But uh, at the end of his life, in a sense, he's giving last words. And as I've shared with you before, and I'll share again because it's very important, oftentimes it comes down to this, last words are lasting words. And so it's important that we kind of pay attention to when someone kind of gives a final thrust, if they have an opportunity to go, man, when it's all said and done, if I were to say anything before my death, this is what I would like to convey to you. That's really kind of the intent and the spirit of this letter we call 1 John. John's letter and encouragement as well as his warning to the early church. Um. If you're already turned there, I'm going to read our text here this morning, but I do want to give a shout out really quickly to Mike Anderson. Uh, Mike, you have been, as Pastor Tom already said, extremely faithful in so many different areas. Um, I actually recently found out that, you know, we think Mike's kind of taking a step back and, you know, maybe reevaluating his area of service. Mike has actually already been serving at the juvenile detention center and putting on a church service on Sunday afternoons, right? Like, I don't know, how, how long you've been doing that, Mike? A long time. Yeah. Why haven't you ever told me that? <laughs> I just found that out through another source. I'm like, oh my goodness, this guy just continues to impress me. Actually, Christ in you continues to impress me. So brother, thank you for your faithfulness and loving on the young people so well. I love that. I'm sure there's actually a place for you too. So, All right. We are beginning our exegesis, our, our, our kind of like step-by-step discovery of what John has for his early church, and I think as we'll see, it's just as relevant for us 2,000 years later. So let's read verses 1 through 4 of First John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and which we have heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Heavenly Father, right now, I just ask that you would give us ears to hear. I pray against any distraction. There's, uh, there's millions of things that can potentially distract us right now. But Father, our greatest need as always, is to hear from you. And so, Father, speak to us by your Spirit. We ask that you would give us a receptive heart, not just ears that want to be tickled, but a heart that is willing to follow through in obedience. 
Father, we ask that you would glorify yourself, that Jesus, you would be exalted, and that Spirit, you would fill us afresh, consume us, so that we might live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you have read this book by C.S. Lewis. He's oftentimes a very uh, quotable person, and I think for good reason. Uh, He was a man who was at one time not a believer, and then when God captured his heart. Uh, he was a philosopher. You know, he, were, he taught at, uh, at, I think, Oxford and, English, uh, and Cambridge, but mostly at Oxford and stuff. Um, but he was a man who uh, left quite a legacy, quite an impact, uh, even up till the end of his life. One, one such impact or one such source that he left with us to this day is called mere Christianity. Uh, if, by the way, if you're looking, if, if you have someone in your life that you know that is investigating Christianity, this is a great resource. Obviously, the, the scriptures are the primary resource, but this is a great resource to point people to because he really unpacks this idea of like, who is Jesus? And in this, in this book, Mere Christianity, he really kind of uh, proposes four options about who Jesus is. He says, Jesus is either a liar which means everything he said was true is actually not true, and then therefore we should not follow him. Or he is a lunatic, which means he said a lot of things, but he was kind of not all connected up there. And so, again, probably should not follow him. Or he's a legend, sort of like you fishermen, you know, the fish just grows over time as every time you share the story, or whatever it may be. So in other words, he's really just a normal guy, but all of a sudden, 2,000 years later, we have this, like, this grand idea of who he might be, but that's really not true. Or the fourth and only option is that he is Lord. He is who he says he is. And of course, the ripple effect or the implications of that are, well, let's just say they're life-altering and they have eternal consequences. Josh McDowell also wrote a similar book kind of on the heels of that much later, but a book titled More Than a Carpenter, also a nice short read, but really kind of capturing the same essence about who is Jesus. Because here's the, here's the reality, here's the, the world in which we live, the culture in which we live is that there are so many perspectives and, and, and ideas about who Jesus is and who he was. And whether, regardless of whether or not we, we, we diagnose our current cultural climate today or whether we're, we look at the, the spiritual climate in John's day 2,000 years ago, there is a lot of confusion, distortion, faulty assertion, and outright denials of who Jesus really is. And for those of us who still might be considered quote-unquote, babies in the faith, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way by any means. We all start as infants in faith when we first come to faith in Jesus Christ. The fact is, when we're infants, we don't know as much as we do when we become adults. And of course, this multitude of distorted and and, and subjective ideas about Jesus can be somewhat disrupting to our faith, Uh, maybe even a kind of make us doubt our faith. For example... When someone that is seemingly smart, at least in your eyes, uh, comes up to you and they seem well-read and and very articulate with their words and maybe even know a lot of scripture, maybe they tell you dogmatically and emphatically that they know the truth about Jesus and your idea of Jesus is somewhat faulty or untrue, it can cause you, what, to doubt. Maybe, Maybe I don't know what I thought I knew. 
Maybe I don't have a a decent idea about who Jesus is. Maybe I'm actually not saved, even though up until this point I thought I was. Because the Jesus they're describing is different than the Jesus I came to know. When I was a college student in my undergrad, um, there was a church uh, that began on our college campus. It was a Church of Christ sect, and a, a very particular denomination of Church of Christ, not the general one that we normally maybe are used to or familiar with, but this particular Church of Christ sect was very intriguing, and because I was the president of Campus Crusade for Christ at the time, they kind of reached out to any ministry leaders, and so um, they pursued me, and I was kind of curious. I'm like, oh, Church of Christ, are we fellow Christians? Well, given enough time and given enough association with them, I began to realize uh, we were actually kind of different. Uh, and, and what I'm, and I'm not here to throw them under the bus necessarily, but basically their, their proposition was this. We are the true church and every other church is in a sense substandard at best. And they were in that, they would say that emphatically. And, and I would say, well, what, what does it mean to be saved? Who do you say Jesus is? And as they would describe initially, we're like, well, you believe the same thing. Well, you must be baptized in order to be saved. It's not just by faith alone and Christ alone for the glory of God alone. You must be baptized. And there's actually five components that they kind of included in how you could be assured of your salvation. The irony is I had all those things that they require. I was like, those are all true of me, but not you weren't baptized into our church. And here's the, here, here's the kind of the, the prickly part of all this. They didn't have their own Bible. They opened the Bible you have in front of you. So they opened not a distorted translation, but they opened the scriptures and they say, see, this is why we believe what we believe. And at first, as a, as a person who grew up in a Christian home in a very godly environment, who my parents instilled the word of God from early on in my life, even I was a little like, oh, maybe I don't understand. Maybe I really don't understand Jesus for who he is. Maybe I've, I've been under this impression that I'm saved, but they're saying I'm not, and they're showing me scripture. But you know what it did? It gave me a great opportunity to dive into the scriptures and go, what is God actually saying? Because here's the deal. Satan, the arch enemy, used scripture to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. He opened the text, so to speak. He says, see? And how did Jesus respond to temptation through scripture? With scripture. Here's the difference. Satan took scripture, rips it out of its context, and distorts and causes doubt and a lack of assurance and disrupts one's faith. Jesus responds in the right use of scripture and says, yes, but the scripture also says. The scripture also says. And so anytime we take a verse and completely rip it out of its context in light or in disregard to the rest of the whole counsel of God, then we get in trouble. 
And so even though at first I was a little like taken back and and unsettled, God used that as an opportunity to drive me deeper into my understanding of what Scripture was actually teaching, even if for a little while I was a little disrupted. And that's really what John is doing here in our in our letter. We've already kind of uh, kind of briefly described his intent behind this letter. John is seeking to to uh, help these Christians that he's writing to to remind them of what is true, and therefore to be able to decipher or discern truth from error. We see that he's reeling them back, in a sense, with his apostolic authority to a pure and undistorted understanding of Jesus. And again, he's, he's, in a sense, he's somewhat saying, he's like, hey, brothers and sisters, I'm not regurgitating ideas that I heard from some really articulate person one day. I'm telling you firsthand, I'm giving you firsthand what I heard from the lips of Jesus himself. I was with him. I heard him. I spent time with him. We slept in the same place together. We spent countless hours. We ate together. Everything that you're hearing from me is literally from the lips of Jesus with no distortion. And so in John, what he is seeking to do is these these believers are becoming a little disrupted even in the beginning of the church. It did not take long for wolves in sheep's clothing to come in and to promote other ideas that were outside the scope of Scripture. So the question for us this morning is this. What does Scripture say about Jesus? Again, there's all kinds of ideas proposed out there. But what does Scripture say about Jesus? Who is Jesus according to the counsel of God's Word? I think the first thing we need to understand very quickly is that Scripture teaches us that Jesus is divine. He is deity. In fact, one of the best scriptures that we can point people to, even though there's a number of scriptures, one of the best scriptures we can point people to about declaring and showing Jesus' divinity or his, his, his divine status before God is in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Listen to this. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the person of Jesus Christ. By the way, I don't have time to unpack that very dripping wet soaked. I mean, this is just heavy with theology, this passage. But T.J. Smith, actually, one of our missionaries, already preached on this this last summer. Many of you already heard it. If you have not heard it, I think it was July 17th in which he preached that. You can go listen back to it, and he'll unpack that for you this morning. The point I'm getting at is this. Jesus is divine. But we also see that he's not only divine, but Jesus is also human. 
Scripture teaches us that Jesus is human. Listen to what the gospel writer, John, in this case, the same writer, says in John 1.14, the word that is Jesus became flesh and lived among us. Now, you remember from last week, we talked that there was a heresy introduced in the early church called Gnosticism, right? Gnosticism, Gnostic means to know, gnosko means to know. What they were promoting or pushing forward was like, you guys don't know, but we do. You guys don't know the real truth, but we have, we have uh, uh, almost mined the depths and we understand the secrets of what it means to truly be saved. And so you need to listen to us because most of you are all deceived. Not to mention, we see that Gnosticism, uh, it, it promoted this, uh, this theology, you could say, or this doctrine that says all matter is evil and only the spiritual is, is actually pure and good. So Jesus could not have taken on a human form because if he took on a human form, he would be evil. And so therefore, Jesus was not a human. He was only a spiritual person. And whatever you think you saw was actually not true. Which is why you understand why John says what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have touched with our hands. He's, he's, what he's trying to push back against, he's like, no, he's not just a spiritual deified being. He is God in human flesh. I've seen him with my own two eyes. I've hung out with him. I've spent time with him. He is, in fact, full-on human being. And, and there's, a, there's a foundational truth, brothers and sisters, that we need to kind of wrap our minds around or at least kind of come back into a, a settled uh, uh, realization. And that is this, that Jesus is not just half God and half man. Jesus is not all God and no man, as Gnostics would say. Jesus is not just a man or all man and no God. No, Jesus is the God-man is how we put it, how, how, how scholars kind of summarize that. He is the God-man. He is fully God, and he is fully man. He is like us in some respects because of his humanity, but he is not like us because of his deity. It's important that, in a sense, that we get Jesus right. John Piper actually, uh, he contributes to this thought, and I, instead of me just kind of summarizing, I thought it best to just read it to you because there are significant implications of accepting both the deity as well as the humanity of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. He says, many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains merely spiritual reality. But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing particular commands, and dying on a particular cross, exposing the particular sins of our particular lives, then the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. I don't think it is so much the mystery of a divine and human nature in one person that causes most people to stumble over the doctrine of the incarnation. No, the stumbling block is that if the doctrine is true... Every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. Everything he says is law. Everything he did is perfect. And the particular, particularity of his work and the word flow into, his, into history in the form of a particular inspired book written by the, in the particular languages of Greek and Hebrew that claims a universal authority over every other book that has ever been written. 
This is the stumbling block of the incarnation. By the way, the word incarnation means God taking on a human form, human flesh. It's incarnate. Carnate means flesh. It's what Corey is going to be enjoying this evening and all those who participate. (laughs) It's carnage. I don't know where that came from, but... This is the stumbling block of the incarnation. When God becomes man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. Listen to that. When God becomes man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. We no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. I'll skip ahead. He goes on to say, when God becomes a man... Man ceases to be the measure of all things, and this man becomes the measure of all things. This is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of men and women. The incarnation is a violation of the bill of human rights written by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is totalitarian. It is authoritarian. It is imperialism, depotism, usurpation, absolutism. Who does he think he is? God? You get the point. The fact that Jesus is both fully God and fully man has significant eternal implications, not only for his own identity, but for us to come into and understand. Has significant implications for you and me. And that song that we just sang, we stand forgiven at the cross. Jesus could only die because he took on the form of human flesh. He could only redeem us because he took on a human body and die so that you and I could live. We have hope and confidence and assurance only because God in Jesus Christ came down and he loved us enough to take on a human body like us with all its limitations and to die a sinner's death on a cross so that we would have the guarantee of eternal life when this body falls apart. So Gnosticism was a heresy that was radically disrupting the church. And John is addressing going, hey, it is critical that we get Jesus right on this. He's warning believers, watch out for this. Whatever they're proposing, come back full circle and remember the words that I spoke to you at first. Remember the faith that you entered into at first. Remember, I'm someone who is with him. You can trust my apostolic authority. Well, John continues on, and he gives us, at least in this particular text, two other reasons as to why he writes this letter. He's wanting not only to warn the church of Gnosticism and imposters, but he also writes to give us two reasons. He says, I write so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Again, two reasons, and there's other reasons that John will go into later as to why he writes this letter, but two reasons for us this morning is, first and foremost, he's writing so that these believers would have fellowship with other believers as well as with God. 
John wants believers who have already entered into fellowship with God or who have yet to enter into fellowship with God to not only experience that, but realize their fellowship with one another. Now, this idea of fellowship can be kind of a loose term depending on who you talk to, right? In the Greek, the, word, the Greek word, not that you have to memorize this or remember this, but it's koinonia. It's a, it's a specific kind of fellowship. And, and maybe in our day and age today, we, we think of fellowship as having cookies and coffee after service, right? And we're all chatting around and like we have this kind of pacifier called cookies and coffee and we're just nodding our head, right? And well, see you later, <laughs> you know? Um, or maybe you think of fellowship in a deeper level and it's like, okay, well, it, maybe it's beyond that. Maybe it's, it, it's shared hobbies or shared likenesses and it, and it could definitely include that. We oftentimes have fellowship with people uh, that, we, that kind of either think like us or, or that we that share the same passions and desires, and that also is an aspect of koinonia or biblical fellowship. But it goes even deeper than that. You see, Christian fellowship in the early church, and I believe it's really God's design and intent for us even to this day, is to share something in common that is so significant and so important that very little else would actually sabotage that. It's to share something so in common that all the other things that could potentially cause a division loses its power. You see, koinonia fellowship really entails a joy and a oneness in a group of people that are in one accord, united on things that matter of of matters of first importance. It's a common value and belief system and goal. You love the same things. You pursue a common purpose. That is the basis of koinonia fellowship. This is what. This is what John is referring to when he says that you would have fellowship with one another. It's not just like, hey, you want to hang out because we like to do the same thing. There is fellowship on the Friday hiking group, but that fellowship goes even deeper, not just the joy of being in the mountains. There's even a deeper bond that exists. It's people that love Jesus and they want to encourage one another, and hiking is really a means to do that. And to bring great glory and worship to God and go, look, God, you, your creation's incredible. I'm just looking at Dick right now, so it's the easy analogy right now. We also see that fellowship with one another really comes on the heels of a, a primary fellowship, and that is fellowship with God. John says that he, we're writing these things so that you may f- have fellowship with one another because we already have fellowship with God. This fellowship with God means that we have gone into really a business with God, that we, that we, share, the mu- that we share mutual interests and we have a mutual devotion and activity. In other words, God's heartbeat becomes our heartbeat. God's mission becomes our mission. His goals and plans become our goals and plans. We love what Jesus loves. We desire what he desires. We hate what he hates. We will what he wills. What does it mean to be in fellowship with God? It means that it's a surrender, an absolute surrender, as Andrew Murray would call it, and we come under the authority of Christ, and everything that he loves and desires becomes our love and desires. It sort of begs the question, do I experience that kind of fellowship with my heavenly Father? Is, is my Father in heaven someone that I kind of reach out to every so often when I want something on my terms? Or do I relate to my Father in heaven in an act of absolute surrender, 
where everything, that's why, you know, David says in Psalms, delight yourself in the law of the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will give you the desires of your heart because your desires are his desires. Your wants are his wants. You only want what brings glory and what advances his kingdom. Here's why this biblical fellowship is so significant for you and for me. Fellowship with God, brothers and sisters, automatically brings us into fellowship with other believers. Let me say that again. Fellowship with God automatically brings us into fellowship with other believers. It kind of pushes back on the idea, right, to, that I love Jesus, but I can't stand his church idea. Uh, you can't say you have fellowship with God and, and avoid all those you've been united with, whether you like it or not. The point is, when we begin to follow Jesus by faith and accept that he is the only way to God, which is made possible through the death and resurrection of Christ, then we automatically enter a, into a koinonia-type fellowship or relationship with everyone else who has done the same thing. In other words, if you said yes to Jesus, then you've said yes to everyone else who said yes to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? When Jesus becomes your Savior, God becomes your Father, and all of God's children become your family. Whoa. You know what that means? Look around. Do it. Go ahead. Swivel. We're family. We're family. And let me just say that with a qualification or a greater exclamation. We're family regardless of extraneous theological differences. I think there's two points of application that I want to kind of emphasize here when we understand the reality of this koinonia-type fellowship that we get to share with each other. First, is actually really positive. It's the fact that when you come into saving faith with Jesus Christ, the fact is we have brothers and sisters all over the world. I love that, you know, looking at Pastor Tom's life, he's getting ready to go to Liberia. Guess what? He's actually going and hooking up with brothers and sisters that he doesn't always know very well. And there's some kind of crazy thing that happens when you find out that someone's a believer in Jesus Christ. There's an immediate bond that, you know, like the dots are connected. You're like, whoa, you're a Christian? You're a follower of Christ? This is amazing. This is incredible. We're, we're family here. In fact, you could even go so far to say this, a Chinese brother or a, a South American sister in Christ is closer, or there's a bond that is even greater than a family member who does not know Christ. There was a... Um, Actually, just looking at you, Rachel, and stuff, there's a group of ladies that uh, came to our house. I actually was gone most of the time, and I just came back, and, um, and uh, Abby was being prayed over by these ladies. My sister-in-law down in San Diego, my brother-in-law, they have a church down there. They're up here for a retreat, and it was just really incredible. Like, there's these ladies coming in, I'm just kind of walking in, almost kind of the tail end of it, and uh, they're, being, they're praying over our family, and uh, I'm like, there's just the, this immediate connection, like, oh, Extended family members. That was my thought. I'm like, 
your sisters. I've never seen them in my life. But there's an immediate bond that we share with one another. It's incredible. I pray that we can celebrate that more. I pray that we can regard one another in that way. And that brings us me to my second point of application. I think it is an, a little unfortunate, and I put that facetiously when I say little. I believe it's a little unfortunate that we as Christians are often more divided than we are united. I think it's interesting when you, when you look at the body of Christ We focus more on what divides us than what unites us. And we only feel comfortable around those who think like us and act like us and, in a sense, belong to our camp. Now, I think, to kind of qualify what I'm saying here, obviously I think there's good reason for a variety of of local church congregations. It's okay. And it's okay to agree to disagree on some theological differences. It's okay to gather with people of of a similar persuasion in a sense, but I believe the pendulum has swung to an unbiblical or in a way in which does not reflect Christ's prayer for his church. So instead of linking arms with followers of Jesus from other churches, even those whom you might disagree with on tertiary issues, we often think of them as the enemy, or at least people we want to avoid till eternity. You see, there's a lot of friendly fire going on, and I believe our enemy is just having a heyday and laughing it up and just saying, yeah, you know what? (laughs) Look at the church. Look at this body of Christ. How are they any different than the world? They're backbiting. They're lobbing grenades of whatever into one another's camp. They can't even get along. They don't play well with others. And instead of recognizing that as disciples of Jesus, who love Jesus and, and are therefore called to love one another, I mean, this was, this was Jesus' prayer in John 13. Oh, the world will know that you are my disciples. How? By the love that you have for one another. All the world will know that you are my disciples. How? By the love that you have for one another. He prays again in John 17, Oh, Father, may they be one as you and I are one. He's not talking about just IBC. He's talking about the entire body of Christ. And as most of you know, Abby and and our family, we we got to, uh, while I was on sabbatical, share in the body of Christ in multiple different church congregations. You know what's incredible, and I got to share this morning before we started our service. We start service at 10 o'clock. Almost every church in town starts at 10 o'clock. Do you realize that the body of Christ is gathering in their respective places, but they all are coming as blood-bought children of God and seeking to worship God? Yes, maybe in a different form. Yes, in a different way. And guess what? We probably don't agree on everything. That's okay. Because what binds us together is not unanimity or that we agree on everything. What binds us together is that we are children of God, saved by the blood of Jesus, forgiven of our sins, and guaranteed eternal life. Jesus Christ is what binds us together. And so it's, it's, it's vital that you and I get this right. 
It's not that we just get Jesus right and understand him more fully. It's vital that we understand the implications of that. What Jesus is praying for his church is that we would be one as he is one with his Father. I was at a retreat in Montana back in May, and uh, I got invited to this retreat, and um, I knew going into it, obviously the, the group I was walking into was not, let's just say, I'll put it this way, we're part of a different camp theologically. And I say that really loosely because, yes, we don't agree, see eye to eye on everything. And so I, I'm walking in somewhat exhausted, just entering into sabbatical on, okay, you know, it's going to be a really good time, thankful for the opportunity, feeling a little guarded, you know, because I'm not with my people, so to speak. And can I just say to you, uh, I walked away from that time liberated. That God used people that I disagree with on some theological points, but the Spirit of God brought me there and used them to bring great freedom in my own heart. And one conclusion I walked away with, I was like, wow, those guys love Jesus. So regardless of, again, extraneous differences that we all share, by the way, if you really want to take that to the nth degree, you will be alone and still conflicted in of yourself because you still don't really know. The fact is, the heart of Jesus is, may my church be one. It doesn't mean that we can't have a, a debatable conversation. I'm not saying throw theology and doctrine out the window. No, I'm not saying that. But there's a love, a, the catalyst of love brings us together in spite of our differences. Let me just say it again this way. When Jesus becomes your Savior, God becomes your Father, and all of God's children become your family. There's a second reason for writing, and that, that is that our joy would be full. John says, I write so that we would understand the fellowship that we share with one another, but so that our joy would be full. I'll, I'll, I'll pick up the pace here for us. John says this, I, I'm writing so that your joy may be complete, is the, the translation I'm reading from. It's kind of similar to what Jesus uh, is echoed in John chapter 15, verse 11. He says, these things I have written I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It's similar to what Psalm 16 says in verse 11. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In other words, what John is saying is fullness of joy is experienced when we have fellowship with God and therefore in turn fellowship with one another. And this is also an important truth that we need to kind of chew on and reflect on in our own lives. Because we're always, all of us in here are pursuing some version of joy. We're always pursuing something that makes us happy. In fact, when you think about it, what did you do this morning or already before you came to church to make you somewhat more joyful? Perhaps some of you, uh, you poured your first cup of coffee, right? Ah, don't speak to me until I get one of these down, or I'll bite your head off, right? Or, or you, uh, you cooked your favorite breakfast. 
Or you took a nice warm shower. Thank you, by the way. Here's what we need to know. God cares about your joy. God actually wants you to be happy. Do you realize that? I know sometimes that doesn't sound very theological. You're like, wait a second. No, I need to be obedient. You do. (laughs) I'll get to that in a second. God wants you to be happy. He wants your joy to be complete. He wants you to to experience the fullness of joy that he has to offer. Again, we all in our own mind, in our own way, pursue things that we think will bring us joy, that will make our lives happy, that will give us a sense of contentment and fullness. And some of those things probably do for a moment, much like a vapor, it comes and goes, like your life. But God, the the joy and the the fullness of joy and the happiness that God offers is everlasting. It never ends. It never fails. It never ceases. It never goes away. And it's it's deeper and more complete and more life-giving than any joy that we can pursue on our own terms. He says, I offer a divine joy that is not circumstantially dependent. I offer a joy That is beyond all understanding. And I want you to have it. But the way in which you have or attain or experience this joy, the way in which your joy is complete is when, not if, but when you walk in fellowship and koinonia fellowship with the Father. Another way to say that is when we are in right relationship with God the Father. And because when we are in right relationship with God the Father, it is then that we can be in right relationship with one another. By the way, just a side note, off, the, off my notes here, if there is a conflict, a, 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 an issue that you're grappling with, especially one that is relational, that is more horizontal, that is always an indication Not because you can control the initial conflict, but when it persists, it tells you there's a disconnect with your relationship with your Father. Because when we're in right relationship with the Father and absolutely surrendered under His authority, when His will is our will, when His desire is our desires, when His heart is our desires, then we will only and always pursue and take steps that are necessary for reconciliation. And, of course, the promise is not just reconciliation, but joy. A joy that is beyond all comparison. A joy that cannot be comprehended except you know it when you experience it. And the fellowship with God and with one another, when that is experienced, we we, we actually get to experience it by our obedience, and that's going to be kind of next week's sermon. That'll be verses 5 through the end of the chapter. So let me summarize our time very briefly in this way. John emphasizes the importance of getting it right when it comes to Jesus. It's important that we get it right when it comes to Jesus. And how do we get it right? Not by forming a Jesus that you want, but by receiving the Jesus that is revealed in the Scriptures. Not by just heeding someone's articulate words and and, and ideas about him. It's The Scripture tells me who Jesus is. God has given us a revelation so that we might know him and therefore come under his leadership and authority. 
and experience the life that he offers. And when we enter a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, we not only get to experience the fellowship with God that he offers, but we automatically enter a divine family of all other Christ followers. And John says, when we enter into this kind of relationship, when, we, when we're in this place, there is a joy that is offered to you that you will experience. It's not you might. It, you will experience. That will be yours. And the world will look at you and go, what in the world's wrong with you? You should be ticked off right now. You should be riled up about any number of issues, and you are full of joy. Not because you're naive to issues, not because you're ignorant to what's going on in the world in which we live, it's because you see things through a different filter. And you see a sovereign God who says, you're part of my plan. Look and see what I'm doing. And until I come, may you love one another. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to reconcile us to God. You see, before Jesus came, we were lost and dead in our sins. What does Paul say in 1 Timothy? He says, it is a trustworthy statement that Christ came to save sinners. And such we are. But God, right? It doesn't stay there. We're sinners who can now say we're sinners saved by grace, and now we are saints of God. We are children of the Father. We are royalty. Not because of intrinsic value and of ourselves, it's because of the value that God declares to us as his children. 